good on that? Cindy, okay. Okay, and then um, going into our first song. And... Um, no, that Matthew reading's at the beginning. Yeah, it and should only be in oh, there. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, that, that one is, yeah, go ahead and just leave that up. I'm, I'm just reading two verses before oh, okay. we sing our first song. Yep. So, yep. And the blind uh, and the lame came to him in the temple, and Jesus healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Slow it down just a little bit.
singing louder once I get my voice warmed up. Okay. Can you hear him okay? Okay. Worthy is the man. 
is the Lamb, for you are holy. Holy. No, no, we're not going back a third time. Yeah, just, just the one time. And then we'll just go back to the that in, that opening first call. Okay. So Cindy, yeah. Um, okay. So, okay. Oh, did you? Okay. <coughs> do you want to? Should we do a walkthrough of it just real quick, or are you good? Yeah, I must have skipped this because I'm seeing stuff up there that I would have not let have gone through. <laughs> yeah, so that should be an ending. Just that hallelujah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I would put ending, uh, create an ending, and then put that hallelujah, um, hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reign. That should be an ending, just unto itself. Uh, not the ending. So it should go, Alleluia, Alleluia, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Alleluia, Alleluia, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And then Alleluia, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Yeah, so you can take off that you are um, on that slide. Take the you are off. Holy. Um, it was the it was that last hallelujah on the slide before? Okay, so if that just that standalone hallelujah was there, we don't need it here. So yeah, so we'd go hallelujah from the previous screen. And then, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. You are holy. Okay, so go ahead and put you are holy right there. Because that should go on with that slide. And then the next, then it goes back to... Um, okay, is that the next slide? Okay, it should go back to the chorus. So go ahead and insert. Uh, where is one? Okay, tell you what, I'll I'll come back. Let's let's finish up, and then I'll come back and we'll walk that through. So. Okay, and let's see then. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. King of Israel, thou David's roar, David's royal son, who in the Lord's name comes. 
second. Mary, sorry. I forgot about that. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You now, together as a family, to proclaim your greatness. Father, you are good. 
Father, you are holy. Father, thank you for sending your son so that we could come together and celebrate his entry into Jerusalem in the beginning of the culmination of your plan for us. Father, thank you that from the beginning you knew. You knew this moment. You knew this celebration. You knew this day. You knew us. Thank you for your spirit here, Father, that dwells in us, that comforts us and leads us, that guides us and corrects us and fills us. Thank you for your son, for the great sacrifice that's coming, for overcoming sin and death. Lord, these are the things that you have done for us that draw us together this morning. And so we praise you and you alone. Father, we take this moment to set aside any distractions, Father, any gods that we may have put in your place. We deny them and claim and praise you and you alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, Josh, for being in that booth. We have a lot of people out sick today that uh, had uh, parts to play. And one of the wonderful things about our congregation is that people step in and fill those gaps. Um, and that is always a blessing. But this week, the weather has been crazy, hasn't it? I mean, it just has kind of felt like my life, actually. <laughs> kind of mixed up, a little not sure of itself. What should it be doing? Should it be snowing? Should it be raining? Should it be hailing? Should it be 78 degrees? Should it be... <laughs> you can always count on your art. <laughs> yeah, it has felt that way to me in uh, new and different ways, I suppose. I want to start by reminding us of some of the things that we've done during Holy Week during the last five years, because this Holy Week is going to seem a little bit different, particularly today. For the last five years, we've had palms that we've handed out, and we've had people in the congregation. Everybody gets a palm, and everybody throws their palm into the aisle to signify what the Jewish people, the people gathered in Jerusalem for Passover were doing. And we've thrown cloaks, and we've had people shouting at different areas in the congregation, Hosanna in the highest, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and various other phrases that we find in Scripture. And then toward the end of that service, we have also reminded ourselves of the reality of how quickly the opinion of people changes, and how quickly we realize what they were really seeking was not a suffering Savior, but a political Savior. And they shouted at the end of the week, Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar. Away with him! And why have we done this? Is it just because it's kind of one of those cool things you do on a holiday? No. We decided to start doing that so that we might all remember that it was our voices heard 
on that day. It was our voices heard shouting Hosanna. And it was our, verse, our voices heard shouting crucify him. It is only because of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that we are any different. Only Christ. Only Christ. If we ever forget that reality, we become proud. And we think, I'd never do that. <laughs> oh, yes, you would. And yes, I would too. Too often we look for that conquering king, that president to save us, that governor's race that will make all things new. Instead of looking for the Christ who rides on a donkey, who comes the evils of our own hearts to conquer. Let me ask a question. Why does Christ save us? No ready answers. <laughs> yes. What else? Yes. Those are the two reasons. Psalm 106.8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. That he might make known his mighty power. Conquering an earthly kingdom or a king or to display his mighty power is just kind of silly thinking. That wouldn't display his power. He can do that with the breath, with the momentary thought. God can wipe it all out. It doesn't tax him to do that. No, the display of his mighty power required something far greater than toppling kingdoms. It required his own death. That is the display of his mighty power. The conquering hero is the king who dies to save his people. That is Christ. Romans 5.8 then also says to us, the second reason God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Blood and love mingled together, flow down from the cross. And this day, Palm Sunday, and this week, Holy Week, remind us of both our guilt and our joy at redemption. That Christ it conquers death and sin, and he does it for his own namesake and because of his great love for us. Let's pray. That's not the end of the message. Don't get any ideas. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray uh, this morning that everything that I say uh, would be um, empowered by your spirit, not because I say it, Lord God, but because it's what you want said. And if anything I have written in these notes is something that you do not want said, you do not want declared, then I pray, Lord God, you make me brush over it, not speak it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. Amen.
So, so what does this introduction have anything to do with the Lord's Prayer? The catechism question that we're on today. I had to ask myself that same question multiple times. But it has everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. We come today to learn to pray. Not because we merit the privilege, but because we've been given the joy of praying. Not because of a righteousness that we have of our own, because we don't have any, but because the Son of God was born, crucified, buried, resurrected, that we, through him, might be saved. So then let's take up the task at hand and learn something about what it means to pray. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, and I'm going to read through verse 15. And as you're turning, I'll give you a heads up. I have three main points and 420 subpoints. No, just three main points, and hopefully I'll stick to those. The, the points are these. The corporate character of prayer the intimacy, intimacy and reverence of prayer, and the petitions of corporate prayer. So let's read Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I am placing a significant emphasis this morning on the idea of corporate prayer. Because I honestly think, as I've studied this passage again and again this week, that that is what Christ is doing. He's teaching us about corporate and in order for you to really see maybe the difference here, um, I want to provide you with something you're probably not going to like, but um, something that has been very helpful to me. And it's a little English lesson via the Greek. We all know that in English the word you can be plural or singular, right? Everybody know that? Right? The difference between would you like to come over today for dinner 
and would you like to come over today for dinner is apparent by context, right? But just to be clear, you're not all invited over for dinner. Not today, anyway. I value my marriage more than that. <clears throat> but there is a way that the, <clears throat> the southern part of the United States, particularly Texas, and I say that because my brother is more Texan than he is Washingtonian, um, always uses the phrase, y'all, or all y'all. Y'all is the singular, and all y'alls the plural. Now, of course, Peggy and uh, Jenny don't know that because they come from the upper crust of Texas. <laughs> but those of us have more of our feet on the ground, so, so to speak, understand the difference between those all. And, in fact, I had a boss once who made it very clear to me the difference between y'all and all y'all. But, you know, unless I'm writing a Western novel, that really doesn't work well in a Sunday morning sermon. So I want you to understand something, that the Greek does not have the problem that we have in English. When the Greek says you, you know whether it's singular or plural because the word is different. It's a completely different root. It's beautiful that way. So when we read verse 5, and this is some of the, the nuance I want you to see this morning as we work through this passage. In verse 5, the pronouns are plural. And when you pray together, you all must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand together and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners. And that's what the Pharisees would do. They'd gather in little groups, you know, on the street corners or in the synagogues, and they'd all pray together out loud and as loud as they could so that they could get the praise of men and look how good we are at our prayers and our long prayers and our wordy prayers. But he says, you're not to do that. Because they've received their reward. And then in verse 6, the pronouns switch. They're now singular, not plural. But when you pray individually, go into your personal room. That's your closet. Your, and it can also be the treasury. It's that small little storeroom in your house. And shut the door and pray to your singular father, who is in secret, and your father, singular, your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. But then, in verse 7, the pronouns return to the plural. And when you pray together, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For the Father of all of you, knows what all of you need before you ask him. The point of all of this that I'm sharing with you is that the model prayer here, Jesus' model prayer, is a teaching on corporate prayer, not closeted prayer. Look at all the verbs used in this model prayer. Our and us. Our Father. Give us. Forgive us, lead us, deliver us. It's corporate. Now, I, I don't want you to take this like way too far and misunderstand me. 
there is certainly much in this prayer that instructs us in our personal prayer life. But Christ's focus is on the practice of corporate prayer. And though he tells us that praying corporately as the scribes and Pharisees do deprives us of blessing and the rewards he intends, he is not telling us we shouldn't pray corporately. Instead, he instructs us on how to do it. But before I dive into the specifics, I think there's one piece I need to talk about here, and that's the attitude of prayer. And the attitude that is brought out here in the Lord's Prayer. The first two words, our Father. There is a very important distinction here that I think we often are, have a tendency to um, misunderstand. The term our Father is an intimate term. It is familial, that is family, but it is not familiar, that is irreverent. It is our Father. You know, this is not a term that is normally used of God until Christ. And in fact, there are thir over 1,300 uses of the word Father in the Old Testament. Do you know how many of those refer to God as our Father? Exactly three. And not until Isaiah 63.16. Not a single reference to God as our Father. 1,300 times the word is used. But you know what? Christ, Christ makes all things new. Christ uses the terminology here. Our Father. Pater is the Greek word. Pater. Father. Luke uses it in 11.1 as he is repeating this teaching or recording another teaching. But then Paul takes this and just explodes it all over the rest of the New Testament. I'll put these verses out in Faith Life tomorrow, but I'm just going to give you a bunch of the references so that you can uh, grasp how many times we hear this when we only heard it three times and all of them by Isaiah in the Old Testament. Romans 1.7, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians 1.3, Ephesians 1.2. Philippians 1, 2. Colossians 1, 2. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, or 1, 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. 1 Peter 1, 17. And Philemon 3, just to name some. But it is important that we understand that this very intimate term, our Father, is not a familiar term. In other words, it has reverence in it. You know, I, I know that I've heard this many, 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 many times, and I'm afraid I've probably said it myself once or twice. <clears throat> but you know, when you learn things, you learn things, and you've got to confess you were wrong, right? So I was wrong. The term Abba. How many of you have heard the term Abba means daddy? Well, rather than go into all the technical reasons why that is just not possible, 
I want to quote to you just one little bit from a um, philologist. Philologist. It's a hard one to say. Do you know what he does? He studies language and specifically spoken and usage of language. He's a very boring person, but I'm grateful for these people. If you ever have to read through one of their articles, you, you kind of start to nod after the first sentence because it is so picky-uni that it's enough to drive you nuts. But what you do get, if, if you go to the conclusion of their article, <laughs> you get what they're trying to say with all the 125 other pages. James Barr is a philologist, or was, in the Journal of Theology, 1988, he wrote this. Abba, in Jesus' time, was not a childish expression comparable with daddy. It was a more solemn, responsible, adult address to a father. Abba can, be, can either be understood as the father or my father, but never as daddy. And only three times in the New Testament do we see Abba, Father. Always in, to, in a conjunction together, Abba, Father. Once by Jesus, and then twice Paul uses it. Once in Romans, once in Galatians. And Paul uses it to describe and to elevate this idea that God is our father a radical change. Now, the Jewish nation thought of God as father in the sense of creator, but not as progenitor. They thought of him as the beginning of all things, but not as an intimate relationship with him. We have a privilege of an intimate relationship with our father when we understand that he is also God and to be respected as God. Again, I, I don't want you to get me wrong because if you'll remember when I preached the first in the series on prayer, Dan preached the next two, I preached from Psalm 62, 8 where it says, pour out your heart to the Lord. And I encouraged us that there wasn't anything we could bring before God our Father that would surprise him. Not, no emotion of anger or, or horror or fear or whatever was outside the realm of what we could pour out of our hearts before his altar. But we must never forget that it is God to whom we are speaking. He is the creator, sustainer, and revealer of all things. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. And he is our father. I don't, again, I don't want you to get me wrong. It's important and true to understand that God is our intimate father. He is our intimate father. 
our Father. Not just the Father. Not just a Father. But my Father. And your Father. And our Father. That is an incredible truth to me. We are encouraged throughout the New Testament to think of God as our Father. And we are encouraged clearly and vividly over and over and over again to think of him in these terms. Because the relationship because of Christ has radically changed. We have privilege that no one until the time of Christ actually had. But we are never encouraged, instructed, or allowed to speak to God irreverently. It's always good, as my mom and dad used to tell me, remember to whom you're speaking. All right. I want to go to the petitions of corporate prayer next. We've talked about the attitude. There are a bunch of them, and I am probably going to do a lousy job because I've tried to condense um, so much in this passage on Monday when I started. And I would encourage you to do this. This isn't in my notes. But I would encourage you to do this um, because it has been so amazingly helpful to me. Maybe you'll find it helpful. Take a notebook or a piece of paper that has lines on it. And I use a spiral notebook because they're cheap and Mary buys a million of them every year. Um, because we used to buy them for the kids, but we still buy them for us now. Spiral notebook. And I write, when I really want to understand a passage of scripture, when I really am confused or I need to fully understand what I'm reading and I don't want to just brush over it and assume I understand, the first thing I do is I take that notebook on every line, I write a single word of the verse or the paragraph I'm working on. So in this case, I was going to show you a slide today, but I forgot. Um, our would go on the first line. Father on the second line. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Just like that. One word per line. And then I go back, once I've written it word for word, and I stop and look at every word in order. And I ask myself, do you understand what that means? Do you know what that word really means? Quit assuming you know, Paul, and really think it through. Do you understand? And then I began to, that's how I see that this passage of scripture is about corporate prayer because the pronouns just jumped off the page. Our Father, give us, 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 our. It became very clear, and so I put a little square around those, and I write my little notes, and um, then I go to the next, Father. And that's, that's where I started delving into this idea because the word there is pater, Greek, for father. It isn't Abba. And I thought, well, what's the difference? And so I started looking. And I won't tell you all of that. But anyway, um, so I go down and each word I think about. Hallowed. What does that mean? It certainly is not a word that we use a whole lot of anymore. 
hallowed be your name. I don't know. I thought most of the time it, it, it's simply like something you sing in a song or something. But it means to be held in the highest esteem. To be treasured above all other treasures. It means to hold in awe. And it means to sanctify as holy. In fact, it's the same word as holy. Just a different form. But then I also realized that this is not an acclamation. This is not, hallowed be thy name. This is a petition. Hallowed be thy name. This is a petition from the heart that cries out with the desire for God's name to get the honor it is due. That's what's going on here. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. That's what hallowed means. That I recognize his surpassing beauty and worth and that his name alone needs to be treasured and that I need to treasure it above all others. Remember the story of Hezekiah when the envoys come from Babylon to meet him? He'd been sick and they used the pretense at least Come and say, well, we heard you were sick, so we brought you gifts, etc., etc. What does Hezekiah do? And by the way, you can read this for yourself. It's in 2 Kings 20, 12 through 19, later on today, if you like. I'm going to give you a kind of a Reader's Digest version. What does Hezekiah do in welcoming to them? He shows them everything. I mean, everything. I mean, not just a few things, but Hezekiah shows them his treasure house. He shows them his silver and his gold and the spices and his precious oil. And then he shows them his armory. Hello. And that was not, and everything that was found in his storehouse he showed them. In fact, it says there was not anything in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Nothing horribly evil in all of that, I suppose. Maybe it's not the brightest thing in the world to do, but nothing particularly evil. But then Isaiah the prophet shows up on the scene. And what does Isaiah say to King Hezekiah? He asks him three questions. The last question is, what did they see in your house? And Hezekiah's response was honest. They saw everything. I didn't, I didn't hold anything back. I let them see it all. Then Isaiah pronounces a curse upon Isaiah and the children of Israel. Why? Why? What was so wrong with what was Hezekiah did? Because Hezekiah didn't show the Babylonians Israel's true treasure. He only showed them the things in his storehouses. And what is Israel's 
true treasure. Isaiah 33, 6. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. He had an opportunity to show the Babylonians who was truly the treasure of Israel. And all he showed them was a bunch of junk that God said is going to get carried away. I wonder, do we hallow, do we treasure the name of God in that way? Do I, do I truly treasure God's name in such a way that I, I make it the focus, that I, that I think on it daily? that I treasure it more than silver or gold or, or my daily food. Do we? I'll leave you to answer that question for yourself. And then the second petition is, your kingdom come. I found that one an odd sort of thing because it's not as though God's kingdom had ever left. Right? It hadn't been overthrown. You can't overthrow God. But this is a petition that God's rule would be visible to all people. His kingdom come. No more challengers. No more questions. No more yearnings for righteousness. But God's visible, eternal, righteous reign to be seen by all. That's what prayer is about. Your kingdom come. Not for any personal gain, but come that you might show the excellencies of your name and your mighty power. Your kingdom come. It's also a prayer for two gatherings. It's a prayer for two gatherings. Because when his kingdom comes, there are two gatherings that occur. The first Jesus speaks of in Matthew 13, 41 to 43. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The first gathering is all sin and all causes of sin and all doers of sin. The second gathering is Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels. Hear a theme there? He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The second gathering is the gathering of God's elect. That is your kingdom come. And then we have the next petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, I thought, that's just a weird sort of thing to ask for. What do we know about God's will? It's always done. Why am I praying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why that petition? Because 
while God's will is always accomplished, it isn't always accomplished as it is in heaven. We're talking about attitude here. Often, God's will is accomplished. Not often. That's really a bad way to say that. God's will is always accomplished. But here, it is often accomplished while we're grumbling and kicking and biting and fighting against it. It still gets accomplished, whether you like it or not. And sometimes God's will is accomplished in spite of the fact that we demand to understand it. And he determines that we don't need to understand it. But in heaven, God's will is accomplished with joy and gratitude and celebration with willing submission. Even when the outcome of that will is not known. The angels wait in anticipation, anxious. Do you remember Christ's birth? What was it that we saw at Christ's birth? This myriads of angels. It's like they've all gathered. This is it. We know what something big's going to happen. And then God announces what it is, and they sing glory to God in the highest. I'd submit that one of the things we need to do is adopt the attitude of angels when it comes to the glory and the will of God being accomplished. Even when it is painful for us. Joy and gratitude are not based on the absence of pain. Joy and gratitude are truly known in the midst of pain. It's like the law. Had the law not been given, we would never have known the joy of obedience. Do you get that? So it is with us, if the pain does not come, we often do not appreciate or understand the joy of submission to the will of God. It's a paradox, I grant you. But it is true, nonetheless. And then we have the three us-focused, if you will, petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. I have for years tried to get Larry to bake bread every day. Um, she bakes a pretty good loaf of bread. <laughs> Um, and I love the smell of that bread as it wafts throughout the house. And I hang around. Whatever day it is she decides, I hang around. As long as she tells me ahead of time um, that she's going to do it. Because I love the smell. But more than anything, I love taking that loaf right out of the oven to her chagrin and cutting the end off. And then eating it fresh and hot. There is nothing I like better, truly. There is nothing in all the world as tasty to me as that fresh baked bread, and I don't care what kind it is. It is wonderful. 
It's not day-old bread. It's not bread that's been frozen and reheated. It's not stale. It's fresh. Why is it so important for us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Why don't we ask for, give us a month's worth. Or can we at least have a week? And yet Christ tells us to pray for our daily bread. And I think the lesson of that is really in the manna. Do you remember what God was trying to teach the people with the manna? He was trying to teach them to depend on him. Not, not a dependence during their holidays and celebrations, but a dependence that was daily for the sustenance they needed to live. Daily bread. And we need that. We need to be reminded that even our physical needs come met by the Father. But I do think that there are truths to the fact that this is not just physical sustenance that Christ is thinking of here. But it is, in fact, spiritual sustenance. It is, so this, because the Scripture uses this metaphor over and over again. The Word of God is the bread. The Word of God is milk. The Word of God is sustenance. It's a daily dependence upon the Word of God in our lives. If you're in the Word of God, if you're reading His Word only on Sunday mornings, then you're getting, in your life, stale bread. You want to know who God is and the joy that comes from being able to call him your father, be in his word every day. Every day. Every day. That's not to place upon you some kind of religious obligation. I'm trying to tell you, if you want joy in your life, this is one of the places you find it being in the Word of God on a daily basis. It is critically important to our health as believers to eat fresh bread, not stale. And then the next petition, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Notice, it's as we have which means in the same measure. It's not because we have. It's not forgive us our debts because we have forgiven our debtors. It's forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debts. Are we generous with our forgiveness? Or do we want God's generosity but refuse to share it with others. You know, I think this puts the lie to uh, some of the trash our society is believing. The idea in our society that I am owed. 
I have a right not to forgive. I have a right not to forgive because I was wronged. Somebody hurt me. Somebody disappointed me. Somebody didn't smile at me. We have a right to hold on to our anger and not offer forgiveness. That's the prevailing truth in our society today. It is a victim mentality that tries to excuse our unwillingness to forgive through a justifying of our anger. And yet here Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now we have to be careful in reading that, that we don't really read that as a condition. It is a statement of truth, and this is why. Because if we refuse to forgive others, I don't care how heinous their crime against us would be. If we refuse to forgive others, we have denied the forgiveness that Christ offers us. What does the word tell us? Yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when we cleaned up our act, Christ died for us. We were still sinners. We are still sinning. I have a relative, a member of my own family, who says they've forgiven my brother for wrongs that he did. And he did do wrong to them. But they refuse to have any relationship with him. And yet they say, I've forgiven him. To which I say, baloney. It's not true. You haven't forgiven. You can't. That isn't forgiveness. I forgive you, but I'm going to hold it over you. I forgive you. Do you know how you know if you've really forgiven somebody? Here's the test. If you've really forgiven someone, really forgiven someone, then what you want for that person is good. And are you willing? And are you actively praying for their good? Scripture tells us, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Are you looking for ways to do good to that person? Or are you still self-justifying? I'm right to feel this way. Really? I would think, again, about the desire to hold on to that. We see clearly when we see our sin in light of Christ's sacrifice. And when we see that, it becomes impossible for us to be comfortable with a lack of forgiveness. When I see 
that it is my hands that held the hammer and nailed his hands and feet to the cross. When I see that it is my hand that held the stick that beat the crown of thorns into his brow. When I see that it is my hands that thrust that spear into his side. How could I ever, ever weigh someone else's sin against that truth and think I had some kind of right to not forgive them? To feel like you cannot or will not forgive is to deny the truth of what God has done for you. It is a denial of the truth. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. All. He forgave my hand. that nailed him to that tree. All my trespasses, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ is the measuring rod Christ is the model of what forgiveness really looks like. I beg of you, let go of those harboring disappointments and anger. Let go of the sin of others because you will be consumed by it. Release those things to the Father and let him shower you with the beauty of his forgiveness. And finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does God really do that? Lead us into temptation? If God doesn't really do that, why would he instruct us to pray, lead us not into temptation? That was the question I brought to this passage, and then I started studying. If we couldn't be or weren't led into temptation, why should we pray this? It would be illogical, irrational. Now I want to put the lie to the fact that we can't that God does not lead us into temptation. Matthew 4.1 Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led into temptation. The devil tempted very important distinction because we get off base when we think otherwise. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Being tempted does not equal sinning. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, I know that's probably a bit controversial, but I'm going to try to help you to understand. The tempter is Satan. But God will lead us into temptation. Do you remember what I said a little while ago? That without the law, we would not know our sin. That's true, Romans 1. But we would also not know the joy of obedience if there was no law. That's why in the garden there's one law given. Don't eat of this tree. Because without the law, there's no possibility of the joy of obedience. There's nothing to obey. So the law has that dual purpose. To be lured and enticed by desire is not sin. It is a testing. And it mutates into sin when it has conceived and given birth. And this is why we know. Because in the temptation that we have been led to, God always provides a way of escape. Always. Always provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13 Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Between the enticing and luring and the conceiving is the deliverance from evil. The deliverance from evil. James 1, 2-4 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's not if you meet various trials. It's when you meet trials of various kinds. And there are things that testing and trial provide us that we can't get any other way. You remember the parable of the sower? I've always thought it should be the parable of the sown seed as opposed to the parable of the sower. Because there's more about the sown seed than there is the sower. Luke 8, 6. And some seed fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. 
And then Jesus explains the parable in Luke 8, 13. And the ones, he's speaking of the seeds, on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So trial and testing really provides the soil and the moisture needed for deep roots to flourish and grow. We run from trial. We give up in trial. The giving up simply identifies the fact that our roots aren't deep. And that maybe we need a bit more suffering. Uh, it certainly has been true for me. Um, suffering has been the means that God has used in all kinds of suffering. Um, I don't know that my suffering you would classify as suffering. And I don't know that your suffering I would classify. But the suffering that he has brought me through in my life has each paid an eternal benefit at one point or another. Not always at first. I didn't recognize it, but later reflection, the Lord showed me. Trial and testing provides the soil and the moisture needed for deep growth so that I can stand steadfast, being fully equipped. My roots are deep and strongly grasped the rock of my salvation. May Christ give us all the ability to see our deliverance from sin and the benefit we enjoy when trials and testing come. Steadfastness and supply our hour. I told Mary as she was getting ready to go to church this morning, I was still working on this message. I told Mary, I'm having a real hard time landing this plane this morning. Bringing this message to a close, wrapping it up, I just can't seem to do a good job of it. But land I must. So smooth landing, bouncing landing, or crash landing, we are landing. Let's pray. Our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand and close.